everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. We are 100% sponsor-based, which means that all the revenues we derive come from sponsorships. But I try to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically trying to choose those who have values well aligned to the values expressed on this show, like freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do is a few ad reads right here at the top of the show and then a few ad, ad reads in the middle. And I hope you won't skip them. I hope you'll take the time, listen and see what they have to offer, because again, these are hand selected sponsors. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Swan Private. Swan Private is a concierge financial services firm based in Los Angeles. Now, I've known the Swan team for years, and these guys are laser focused on the Bitcoin mission. They even have a zero tolerance policy for all shitcoining. Recently, their CEO, Corey Clipston, was instrumental in calling out many of these crypto scams right before they collapsed, saving a lot of people a lot of money in the process. Swan Private focuses on guiding high net worth individuals and businesses on all aspects of Bitcoin strategy, including buying, custodying, and market research. This concierge service provides you direct access to a private advisor by text, phone, or email. So go to swanprivate.com slash breedlove today to sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Ledin. Ledin lets you do more with your digital assets. For instance, Ledin offers a B2X loan product that lets you leverage your existing Bitcoin to buy even more Bitcoin. Or you can also get traditional Bitcoin collateralized US dollar loans through Ledin as well. Ledin also offers both Bitcoin and USDC denominated savings accounts, letting you generate yield on your digital assets. Recently, Ledin has launched a Bitcoin mortgage product as well that lets you use Bitcoin to buy a home or finance one that you already own. So go to Ledin.io, that's L-E-D-N.io today to sign up. So Ray Dalio, who is Ray Dalio? He is the most successful hedge fund manager in history. Ray started Bridgewater, his firm, from his apartment which is today valued somewhere in the neighborhood of $160 billion. Um, Ray incepted this cultural paradigm at his hedge fund that I've been describing earlier called the idea meritocracy, where the best ideas are promoted uh, to be acted upon rather than just the ideas of the individuals in authority within the, within the organization. And in this idea meritocratic culture, candid reviews of colleagues are encouraged. And in Ray's book, he even shares a memo where a subordinate shared, that a subordinate shared with the entire firm that graded Ray a D, right, A, B, C, D, E, or F, this subordinate gave Ray a D for his performance in a meeting. So it just gives you some idea of how he was trying to establish this uh, you know, you're reviewing both up and down the organization such that hopefully the best ideas are promoted rather than just the ideas of the boss, let's say. And this cultural style that he incepted, it promotes the propagation of the best ideas or, you know, uh, at least cleanses a lot of the bullshit, right? Where people are, are encouraged to be candid and frank and honest 
uh, not just to be yes men or brown nosers to the boss. And it, it minimizes, or at least attempts to minimize office politics because it makes the whole political angling less useful, right? Where you, if you're trying to position, you're trying to angle for a position of authority such that your ideas can be the ones that hold weight that doesn't matter as much in an idea meritocratic organization. What really matters is uh, how useful are the ideas. So it sort of dampens the whole uh, dynamic of office politics. And in this spirit, right, this spirit of, of candidness, let's say, I wrote this, this paper, an open letter to Ray Dalio regarding Bitcoin, and I gave Ray an F for his assessment of Bitcoin uh, for three key reasons. And these, this candid feedback that I'm providing Ray was based on a video assessment that he gave of Bitcoin, which we'll play right now and then go into. The two things that a currency uh, needs to be able to do is first be a medium of exchange and second be a storehold of wealth. Can I now buy stuff with my Bitcoin? Not most stuff. And because its volatility is so great, it's not an effective storehold of wealth. So it is a speculative vehicle, now highly speculative vehicle, based on blockchain, which is a very impressive technology. So very similar right now, I would say, to uh, what the internet was, let's say in 2000, okay? So what the internet was, a fabulous force, blockchain is a fabulous force, um, and there will be cryptocurrencies. They will be produced by central banks, by the way, as well as they'll be produced by, um, you know, this marketplace. And the blockchain I'm sold on as a great concept, but whether um, you're going to have which cryptocurrency is going to be effective and, and what that'll look like is a whole different question. Um, like Bitcoin could be BlackBerry. In other words, you can have Ethereum come along and replace that and that'll all change. And so, um, and it is going through this speculative bubble now. A lot of the particular people are in it for a particular, you know, are they knowledgeable? Do we know intrinsic value? Is there that frame of reference? Or are you buying it to resell it quickly? And so on. Those create elements of bubble. So very interesting, very significant potential with the uh, blockchain uh, underneath it. Um, potentially valuable, what I would hope, is that um, it could be very effective as a medium of exchange. Wow, that would be a great thing if they made that very effective quickly so you're using it, and that you can create enough stability in that price so that the uncertainty of the price movement doesn't stand as an impediment to its usage as a currency or its a storehold of wealth. Okay, so Ray's assessment of Bitcoin is a complete failure, in my opinion, and that's why I gave him an F. Uh, and I'll go through the reasons why. So first, Ray says in this video that he is sold on blockchain technology, but not Bitcoin. Uh, despite Bitcoin being the only market-proven use case for a blockchain. Uh, more accurately called a time chain, but blockchain is the term that's stuck. Uh, actually, before I go on, I should mention that this was an assessment Ray gave in 2019. His position on Bitcoin has changed since the publication of this originally. Um, but I, I do, I'm still going to go through his original assessment because it, it is built upon and, and refuted in the paper. So 
just a little caveat there. Um, so yeah, again, Bitcoin's the only market proven blockchain. All other blockchains are effectively unproven market buzzwords. Uh, there's a lot of theory, but there's not a lot of real use case. Um, very little, actually, that we see in the world. And Bitcoin, it's effectively the only, I would say, the only proven use case for a blockchain and that if you need decentralized money that nobody can stop and everyone can opt into, right? You can opt into this universal rule set for money, right? You can agree to the rules that govern your money and it's enshrined in a technology that no one knows how to turn off or deactivate or change or stop or politicize. That's the big innovation of Bitcoin and that's the purpose of a blockchain or a time chain is to, to fulfill that technological need for unstoppable hard money. Um, okay, Ray's second point is that he believes Bitcoin could be disrupted by any other cryptocurrency and he cites the iPhone disrupting the BlackBerry as a comparative example. Now, on the surface, this is a very convincing argument because if you don't understand the nature of, of money, open source technology, protocols, then it would seem rather reasonable that, well, what makes Bitcoin special from all these other tens of thousands of, of crypto assets? And the answer is a bit, a bit sophisticated, a bit nuanced. Um, but I guess the, the general answer is I don't, most Bitcoiners would tell you that it is damn near impossible to disrupt Bitcoin. And let's just say, I'll say that it's extremely unlikely. And I, that is because Bitcoin is a path dependent one-time invention. And as I wrote about in my piece, The Number Zero on Bitcoin, I, I think it represents a critical breakthrough or discovery even of this property called absolute scarcity. We've never had an asset in human history with a, with a perfectly fixed supply, a supply that is known to all and can be changed by none. This has never existed in all of human history. And I don't think it can be achieved again either. Uh, there's a lot of crypto assets out there that say they have a fixed supply or say they have a decreasing supply or whatever it may be. But ultimately, you are trusting the purveyor of that crypto asset or the developer or the foundation, whatever human organization controls that coin and its, its governance features and its supply, that's who you're trusting with those claims. Whereas with Bitcoin, it's become proven over time, right? Through the fork wars of 2017, 2018, that uh, this small block size and 21 million hard cap on the asset has become more probabilistically certain over time with every battle that Bitcoin has fought and won or every attack that's been made against Bitcoin that it has survived. Uh, the credibility of that, of that money supply, of the unchangeability of Bitcoin is increased. So, 
to unpack that a little bit, when I say Bitcoin's a path-dependent one-time invention, I'll explain path-dependence. Path-dependence entails that a sequence of events matters as much as the events themselves. For instance, you get a radically different result if you shower and then dry yourself off versus if you dry yourself off and then shower, right? Same two events, but if you invert the order, the outcome is completely different. So as a thought experiment, if a new Bitcoin were launched today, uh, it would initially have very weak chain security, right? There would not be many people mining this coin, which means it would have very low uh, network security. And its, its minor network and its hash rate would basically have to develop from scratch, as Bitcoins did originally. And if it were launched today, it's obviously launching into a world that's aware of the concept of Bitcoin. And this new Bitcoin would have comparatively weak network security uh, to existing Bitcoin and many other crypto assets for that matter. And so it would inevitably be attacked by incumbents. And indeed, we see this a lot in shitcoin land, right? These weaker chains are getting attacked all the time, hacked, you know, all kinds of shenanigans getting played. And uh, what, you know, these attackers, they might be other incumbent projects seeking to defend their head start. They could be these international banking cartels that Bitcoin is so disruptive to, could even be nation states. Um, the point is that anything that's launched in the wake of Bitcoin is going to have lower liquidity, lower chain security, uh, uh, a weaker network security model than Bitcoin itself. So it's going to be more vulnerable to attack, uh, which would basically enhance the value proposition of Bitcoin as the most uh, resistant asset to attack, the most secure crypto asset in the world. Now, in that way, you could say that it's kind of like Bitcoin's first mover advantage, but in this this particular space, it's much, it's different than Facebook versus MySpace, and I'm going to get into why. So we could say that path dependence is basically protecting Bitcoin from disruption as this organic sequence of events that led to its release and assimilation into the world and into the marketplace. It cannot be replicated, right? You can't rerun the introduction of Bitcoin to the world, right? It just, it, it's all, the cat's out of the bag, the toothpaste is out of the tube, genie's out of the bottle, however you want to put this. And so you can't rerun that experiment. And the Bitcoin that was released, right? It's a money supply that's absolutely scarce, meaning that's fixed supply. And if that new Bitcoin were released, even if it had an absolutely scarce money supply, its holders, or the holders of Bitcoin rather, would be incentivized to hold the chain with the greatest liquidity, greatest network effects, etc. And that is original Bitcoin. So this would create an incentive for them to dump new Bitcoin for the original Bitcoin. Now what's more likely, as we saw with the Bitcoin cash uh, wars in 2017, was you would fork the chain, you would fork Bitcoin into Bitcoin 2.0 or whatever it may be. And then you would try to convince other people that Bitcoin 2.0 is better than original Bitcoin. And what you're doing there is you've effectively forked the social layer of this money into two competing uh, social instances. And you now have two different forms of money competing with each other.
But again, the existing Bitcoin is going to have the greater chain security. New Bitcoin is going to have whatever bells and features they've promised you. But as a holder of original Bitcoin, your incentive is to really just hold both and see which one succeeds in terms of hash rate, price, etc., and then sell the other one eventually. So there's no, it's really hard to create net new demand for Bitcoin 2.0 that would not already exist for Bitcoin 1.0 because it, as your incentive as a holder is to just hold both. So you could take this a step further too. Um, even if new Bitcoin featured, featured a diminishing money supply, like a money supply that actually goes down instead of stays flat at 21 million, this introduces a big, and a lot of people, you've heard this in the Ethereum community where they talked about the ultrasound money uh, thesis, which is totally bogus. Because you introduce, another way to put this is a deflationary money. Bitcoin is like disinflationary, absolutely scarce, meaning that it continues to inflate, but it stops at 21 million. Deflationary would be the money supply is actually decreasing over time, right? Which would be anti-dilutive to all the existing units and in theory would drive their value up. But the question would be, how is the rate and mechanism of that money supply decay determined? Again, this has to be someone's decision. Someone has the, the power to decide how this is, is being done. And as market participants in this, this deflationary crypto asset network basically jockeyed for position to maximize their economic benefit, of this deflationary monetary policy, forks would begin to ensue, chain forks, that would diminish the liquidity and the chain security for new Bitcoin and cause everyone to eventually pile back into the original Bitcoin. And it, I wrote this um, kind of while the Bitcoin cash was still, I mean, Bitcoin cash has basically been a failure from day one, but it was still, the verdict was somewhat out. And this description of how Bitcoin 2.0 is in, in inevitably inferior to Bitcoin 1.0 is pretty much how it played out. Uh, you know, Bitcoin Cash forked, it made a, a weaker social contract. Its hash rate and price in Bitcoin terms started to fall, which caused more people to sell, which caused its price and security to fall even further. All the while, Bitcoin's just growing and growing. So there's really no, like if there is a good way to fork Bitcoin or disrupt it, no one knows how, no one's figured it out. The, the economic incentives surrounding Bitcoin sort of drive people back into this original uh, shelling point, if you will. This is a term we use in game theory a lot. And essentially, Bitcoin's terminal money supply growth rate of absolute zero is the ultimate monetary shelling point. Shelling point being a game theoretic focal point that people tend to choose by default in an adversarial game like money. So my argument here would be that 0% inflation, 0% unexpected inflation is the perfect monetary policy, if you want to call it that. I don't think it's really a policy because it's an opt-in, it's not enforced. Um, but let's say it's the perfect money supply schedule. And somewhat intuitive, if you stop to consider that money is this representational tool, it's meant to represent our time and energy, right? We, we expend time and energy to earn money. We then take the money that we earn into the marketplace and we spend it 
to redeem similar sacrifices of time and energy from other people. Right? So a money that does not deteriorate at all, is undebasable, cannot be inflated, that would be the perfect representation of time and energy. Right? So it's somewhat intuitive and then it's backed up by the empirical experience we have with the fork wars in Bitcoin and then it's further backed up by this game theoretic idea of the shelling point. And in game theory, a game is just any situation where there can be winners or losers and a strategy is just a process for making good decisions. And a shelling point, as I said earlier, is just the default strategy for games in which players cannot fully trust one another. Like money, right? Everyone's trying to get uh, the edge or get a leg up or get ahead in this game of money. So trust is not, interpersonal trust is, is not always the most useful uh, faculty in this game. So we fall back on things like game theory. And I would argue that the, and I did argue in the piece, the number zero on Bitcoin, the absolute scarcity of Bitcoin is a really, really, really big deal. Uh, I compared it to the invention or the discovery of the number zero. Um, there's a lot of debate about whether numbers are invented or discovered, like meaning, are they a fabrication of the human mind or are they something we discovered as part of some metaphysical reality? But in, in any case, the discovery of zero, let's say, was special as it represents absolute nothingness. It's like a categorical term for no categories, right? It's very much a paradoxical idea and it took people a long time to really come up with it. But its role as a placeholder in our numerical system is what gives it its power to scale and cycle through and reuse other numbers. So it makes it much more economically efficient. Uh, gives numbers different meanings based on the location of the zero, right? You, you know, one versus one zero, 10, like these are different orders of magnitude versus 100, 1,000, et cetera. Um, and each zero is effectively representing a new order of magnitude uh, of the integer or whatever the integer is. So. I think, and, and similarly with zero, like you're not going to invent a new zero, right? There's just, there's a, a, an absolute centerpiece to this ideological construction we call mathematics, and it is the number zero. It's not really changeable, you know, it's, it's the centerpiece to the whole mathematical system. Uh, in the same way money is the centerpiece to an economic system, and I, I think, absolute scarcity like we've always been pursuing the most relatively scarce money that's what gold was it was the most relatively scarce asset in the world and that as we economize we develop better ideas better ways of saying doing and making things uh, everything becomes more abundant except gold becomes more abundant than most slowly right so it was the most relatively scarce good or service in the marketplace, and that is exactly why it was favored as money, right? It was an ideal store value, or it was the most ideal store value available. But if we take that reasoning to its ultimate conclusion, that the most relatively scarce asset outcompetes to become money, well then what is absolute scarcity, a perfectly fixed money supply? It would seem that 
by that line of reasoning, that money would outcompete all others, including gold, and then that would be it. That would kind of be the final evolution of money because you've created this seemingly perfect monetary technology. And so, in that way, I think absolute the discovery of absolute scarcity, which I argue that Bitcoin represents, you know, I call Bitcoin an invention. We're assuming Satoshi was a man, uh, at least a human, <laughs> and that's an invention, but it led to the discovery of absolute scarcity. And I think that's a really big deal. Um, you know, as we said, it, gold's supply increased the most slowly and most predictably. This also makes it favored for pricing things. Because if you're going to price something in a denominator that's changing all the time, your prices won't make any sense, right? But if you price something in, in an asset that's stable and predictable, then prices tend to have more communicable value across time and space, right? They're more stable. Um, and so for the, that reason, right, or those reasons, they'll say gold's a really good store of value uh, and it's really good for pricing things. This contributes to its, its promotion as money. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it. Legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. There's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. <laughs> like, I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> So with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. Wasabi lets you use Bitcoin privately while still maintaining full control over your money. Specifically, Wasabi Wallet is an open source, non-custodial wallet with privacy built in by default. By using Wasabi, you're effectively putting the private back in private property. Wasabi Wallet is an easy to use privacy wallet that can support any amount of Bitcoin transactions. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download this state-of-the-art wallet software. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Masterworks. Masterworks gives you access to the fine art market at more affordable price points. They do this by offering you fractional shares in their $500 million portfolio of fine art. Now, fine art is an alternative asset class, and historically, it's been a great performer and a really good hedge against inflation. Most investors typically hold anywhere from 2 to 10% of their assets in an asset like fine art. To sign up or learn more, go to masterworks.com and use promo code BREEDLOVE. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. 
Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. So interesting because the absolute scarcity of Bitcoin would effectively make it the ultimate pricing mechanism for all the ceaseless changes in human productivity uh, occurring through better ideas and whatnot. And this would enable societies to more effectively communicate their preferences through trade. So, you know, it, it's instead of a price change, if a price changes today in dollar terms, I have a very hard time determining whether that means there's more net demand for that asset that increased in price or if this is a, a product of monetary policy, that because we printed more dollars, this asset has now increased in nominal value, but not real value. In a Bitcoin world, it strips out all that nominal bullshit, right? You don't, you don't, you're not confused by, was there too much money printed? Is that why the price went up? You know there was no more money printed. It can't be printed and it doesn't exist. So you've taken all the, the noise out of the channel that is the pricing system and you're left with just pure signal. Um, so I guess one of the great promises of Bitcoin is that we'd have this pristine pricing system where actors can communicate their preferences through trade clearly with one another, you can store your wealth in something securely, and this enables us to cooperate and compete at scale uh, economically, right, in a, in a very peaceful way. So this is a long answer to race critique, but he it's definitely a very nuanced one. So I'll try to sum up a bit here. In the same way that the number zero enables our numeric system to scale and more easily perform calculation, <clears throat> so too does money give an economy and ability to socially scale and more easily perform economic calculation. Said simply, scarcity is essential to the utility of money. And a zero growth terminal money supply represents perfect scarcity. Right? A, a fixed, determinate supply. You know it doesn't change. There's no uncertainty in there. Uh, that effectively makes Bitcoin, at least from the scarcity standpoint, the perfect monetary technology. And from that perspective, both the discovery of zero and the discovery of absolute scarcity are ideas or tools that enable society to scale by saving us time and calculation and trade. Now, Sounds maybe kind of abstract. I would encourage you to check out the number zero in Bitcoin. I go through the history of the number zero and how much it impacted the world. Uh, it is basically essential to all modern science. Without zero, you don't have calculus. Without calculus, you don't have any science, basically, any modern science. So very fundamental to how we progress, how we become more civilized, more intelligent, more innovative, etc., and uh, I think Bitcoin offers a similarly impactful discovery. So in summary, since the invention of Bitcoin represents the discovery of absolute scarcity or absolute irreproducibility, which is another way to say that, which occurred due to a particular sequence of idiosyncratic events, right, path dependence, its emergence into the world cannot be reproduced. Very interesting way to put that. And uh, I think Knut von Holm has a similar quote where he says, 
Bitcoin cannot be reproduced because the, the breakthrough is irreproducibility, right? It's, that's the whole uh, magic of this thing. Uh, kind of hard to get into words, but, but really um, just mind-melting once you, once you get your head around it. So absolute scarcity is a one-time discovery, just like the heliocentric model of the solar system or any other major paradigm, major scientific paradigm shift. Uh, I strongly believe a fair launch via proof-of-work system <clears throat> is no longer possible due to path dependence. And this is yet another reason why Bitcoin cannot be replicated or disrupted by any crypto asset using an alternative consensus mechanism. It's just not going to happen. Uh, and at this point, it seems absolute scarcity for money is truly a one-time discovery that cannot be disrupted any more than the number zero can be disrupted. If there were to be a true Bitcoin killer, it would necessitate an entirely new consensus model and a distribution mechanism. And nothing to date has been conceived that could fulfill that requirement. And even if it was conceived, I don't know how you break the network effects uh, that exist within Bitcoin. You may be able to add that feature to the existing Bitcoin protocol, possibly, but I don't see how you could ever launch a competitor, a competitor to Bitcoin that Bitcoin itself could not uh, adopt that feature set from. So in a nutshell, maybe you could say that in the same way there has only ever been one analog gold, right? The whole world settled on gold as being the premier monetary technology for all the reasons we've, we've covered thus far. There's only likely to ever be one digital gold. And it's my strong opinion that that race has been run and won by Bitcoin. Uh, and the rest is just history we're watching unfold. <coughs> okay, so that was a long-winded answer to Ray's second critique of Bitcoin. I'll now go to the third. Ray says that price-stable central bank or corporate-issued cryptocurrencies like Libra, this was, again, this was written back in... Uh, late 2019, Libra was Facebook's cryptocurrency they were working on at the time, where he says that central bank or corporate-issued cryptocurrencies are a better alternative than Bitcoin as it is too unstable to be used as a medium of exchange. Now, those are his words, uh, and he's referring to the price of Bitcoin. Uh, now, this is somewhat true in that central banks are already announcing their attempts at central bank digital currencies. However, the one thing they will never do is give up the power to control the supply of money because that is the whole point of monopolizing money is to control the supply and use it to steal from people by inflation. So a government will never relinquish that privilege. Um, that is the way uh, central banks and their their uh, surrounding nation states enrich themselves, right? This is called variously the Cantillon effect, confiscation via inflation, the shadow tax, taxation without representation, as we called it back in the American Revolution. Um, now I'm calling, I'm kind of blending a couple of things here, but basically inflation is a form of taxation and it's one that people don't, uh, elected officials don't matter, right? It's not elected officials that are deciding whether or not to print money. It is uh, shareholders of central banks. So the whole 
representation of, of a central bank being a public institution is totally a farce. Uh, you know, the Federal Reserve, it's not federal and there's no reserves. That's basically all you need to know. So since Bitcoin has an absolutely scarce money supply, which is a monetary policy akin to absolute zero, as we explored a little bit earlier, I would argue that it will continue to appreciate on an exchange ratio basis against fiat currencies, which are inevitably printed into worthlessness over time. Now, the exchange ratio volatility against fiat currency is a normal consequence of price discovery for an emergent asset. So what am I saying there? I'm saying that based on my study of humanity's relationship to money, we will continue to produce new units of fiat currency until the currency hyperinflates. That's what we've done with every fiat currency that's ever existed. Now, when you price Bitcoin, which has a fixed supply, in a currency that has an expanding supply, like the US dollar, that translates into a higher Bitcoin price in dollar terms. All right, so that's really the only kind of bet you're making here is that we're going to keep printing money and Bitcoin's going to adhere to a supply cap of 21 million. That translates into a higher dollar price for Bitcoin. Now, there could be some technical argument here on demand. Demand is not driven by price. Demand is subjective. It's driven by valuation. However, uh, I still stick to this argument because the more you debase a currency, the more you are taxing the users of that currency via inflation, and the more you are incentivizing the users of that currency to find an alternative means of exchange, an alternative money, right? People don't like to be stolen from. So if my money is stealing from me, I am incentivized to find a new money. So as we increase the rate of inflation in the US dollar, I think this creates an osmotic pressure that pushes people into Bitcoin over time. Uh, Another way to say this is that, you know, Bitcoin is never, the use of Bitcoin is never compelled. It's always an option. You can always opt into Bitcoin, always, right? No one can force you to use Bitcoin. But that option becomes more and more financially valuable as currency gets debased quicker and quicker. So that call option to exit fiat and go into Bitcoin is becoming more valuable at the same time and for the same reason Fiat currency is being debased, which is inflation. So it's just like a quick vignette about volatility and price discovery and how it relates to Bitcoin. Look at Amazon, from which crashed 94% from $85 to $5 beginning in the year 1999. And it has since grown something like 40,000% uh, to where it is today. And Amazon accomplished this feat by gaining control of, over the digital market for distribution networks. All right, that's effectively what Amazon has done is it's digitized a lot of the logistics of the world and simplified them uh, in a way that just lets information flow more seamlessly through, through producers and consumers in this, in this market network. And that space that Amazon conquered, it too is driven by scarcity very much like Bitcoin, in that there are only finite distribution channels in the world, right? They, they, they do grow and change over time, but the, the geospatial 
size of the world doesn't change that much. So there's only kind of one world to trade on. Uh, therefore, there's one finite set of distribution networks on that world. And it's also subject to these winner-take-all dynamics, which are due to network effects and economies of scale. There's, there's more value in there being one Amazon than there being lots of Amazons because each, if there's just one Amazon, there's more liquidity, there's more options, there's, there's more network effects, frankly. Whereas if you have a bunch of uh, individual Amazons, you, you cut down on those, those qualities of, of, of the marketplace. And when we look at the market for money, we see something similar that the market for money is obviously driven by scarcity, as we've hammered home repeatedly today. And it's also subject to winner-take-all dynamics, like we saw with gold, right? That gold um, takes over the world, effectively, because people want one money. You know, uh, Another way I've heard this put is that liquidity begets liquidity. So the more liquidity an asset has, the more investors want to hold that asset really just as a means of it being liquid, that you can trade it for anything else, gives you a lot of optionality, which means a low risk. So I would argue that you know Bitcoin is actually monetizing along the same path as gold. Today it's being used as a store of value. Once it accrues enough value, it becomes, uh, and people that have accrued value in Bitcoin have a greater incentive to use it as a medium of exchange. And finally, once it's being used widely enough as a medium of exchange, people actually start to think in the money. They start to denominate and negotiate and execute prices in, in terms of that new money. And, uh, you know, as we said earlier, with Bitcoin having this fixed supply, when, it, it, when and if it finally does become this unit of account, it's basically giving us these, these pristine price signals that are all signal and no noise. So, um, you know, to put a button on that with Ray's critique, he thinks, you know, he's just betting that central bank digital currencies will be better than Bitcoin. And I think that betrays a deep ignorance of the supply side fundamentals of money, that people want to hold the money with the most predictable supply. And that is quite simply never going to be a central bank digital currency whatsoever. Um, and again, speaks to the, the irreplicable value of Bitcoin, that you have this one-time invention of a, a credibly established money supply of 21 million that despite many attempts to attack it and change it, has emerged victorious time and time again. Like we only get one of those. You can't introduce anything else that can compete with that on a, on a reputational uh, or credibility basis, in my estimation. So, those are my specific responses to Ray's assessment of Bitcoin. And then after reading his book, Principles, my realization, as I said, was that Bitcoin positively embodied many of the principles that Ray was sharing in his book, despite him having this uh, detractor position on Bitcoin publicly. So, I decided to write an open letter to Ray Dalio regarding Bitcoin to share my perspectives. And uh, with that, I'm going to go into a principle by principle breakdown um, of the, the principles shared in Ray's book. These are not all of them. I'll try to cover the main ones, uh, the ones that really stood out to me. And I'm going to use them as a lens through which to view Bitcoin, the importance of Bitcoin, 
and uh, and also establish kind of a there's a formula that, that comes into play here too for the idea of meritocracy that Ray actually has a formula for it and I'm gonna map that onto um, the identity I drew between the idea of meritocracy and the free market to establish a similar formula for free markets and then we'll roll that into Bitcoin.